0: Janie's in, she's in Kansas right now, and um, tomorrow morning I leave and we'll, we'll join her, and uh, actually, I think she's going to be in Kansas for a few more days, and I'll meet her in Missouri, where my sister lives. We're going down, my brother's celebrating 30 years at their church this weekend, this next weekend, and so we're going to be there with them, uh, but... Don't see that as an excuse to skip church because we have some great speakers lined up. You're going to want to be here for that. And so I know you don't come to church just to hear me. You come to church because we're the body of Christ. And so uh, you'll want to you'll want to be here for that. It's going to be exciting and fresh, and uh, I hope you'll be a part of that. All right. Tonight I want to take a little bit different approach. Um, I want to talk about the laughter of the anointed, the laughter of the anointed. and You can find our text in... Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Let's take a look there. And uh, while we're turning there, let me say um, that laughter is a shared human quality. And it's something that we can do while we're being serious about God. We can still be people of laughter. And some of the most spiritual people that I know um, are laughing people. They know how to enjoy life and, and love God and and have fun, and uh, they can be serious about the things of God and at the appropriate time um, have exuberant laughter. My pastor uh, was, a, was a man of laughter, and uh, I know if you know Curtis Nestegaard, uh, he's a, he's one that can roar with uproarious laughter, and it's contagious. Uh, one of my really good friends, Tim Inlow, who I consider to be a, a great man of God. He uh, he's just like a constant stream of 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 joyous statements. He's he's fun to be around. I think his wife is a little annoyed with him sometimes, but uh, he's he knows how to laugh and and help others get to that as well. And we know from scripture that laughter is uh, is good medicine, isn't it? It uh, it helps us in our our times of difficulty. And so let's take a look at this this passage, and we'll come to it, and uh, we'll deal with it in some more detail in just a moment, but. Hebrews, one of the things that people aren't sure of, just because it has some elements of both, and I don't know that we need to cite on one side or the other, is it a letter? Is it a sermon? Is it both? Something else altogether? Um, But what uh, Hebrews does is, the one thing that Hebrews does is it lifts up Jesus as superior to Old Testament religion without Jesus, right? There's some, the thought is that there's some Hebrew Christians who. Um, are thinking of returning to their pre-Christian phase because it's a lot easier. They've been persecuted and it's difficult. And so uh, the letter or the sermon that is here is an encouragement. What would you be going back to? What's better than Jesus? Nothing's better than Jesus. And, and that's the point. And so as we come to chapter one here, uh, let's just read that first portion. It's edifying even if it's not our focus. Tonight, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? This is a coronation speech that was used for the sons of David. And so uh, this is talking about Christ's incarnation. Um, there is a sense, and we need to understand this, in which Christ's deity preceded his coming, right, as a human. And so he was eternally in relationship with the Father. He's eternally the Son of God. But when he becomes the Son of God in terms of his humanity, this is being proclaimed over him. Or again, I will be his Father and he will be my Son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Uh, in speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and he, And his servants, flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever. Your throne, O God, will last forever. About the sun, listen, your throne, O God, will last forever. So the O God is addressing the sun in this context. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has set you over your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Do you see that? He's anointed with what in this context? The oil of joy. The oil of joy, the oil of gladness. This is this is uh, a particular aspect of his anointing and, and probably this is a figurative way of saying that what will accompany his reign is joy. Are are you with me on that that if we if we come into the relationship God intended us to with the Son, where He is Lord, the response in our life ought to be one where there is a resident joy, not only now but eternally. Okay, so this is this is really important. He's anointed with joy, but it says more than just the effect of His reign. It talks about the nature of who He is—that He is a King who is joyful. Okay, I want to emphasize that tonight. I I wanted to talk a little bit about laughter and. I'm kind of exploring into this subject a little bit, and so I'm not making declarative statements about all of this. But uh, would you go with me on this journey a little bit, and let's find out where it leads. And I think we'll find that in the end, uh, it comes back to this. So if you hear this and you're ready to go, you can go ahead and go, because you'll have heard the gist of the sermon. It's this, is that in God, there is laughter. Okay? In God, there is laughter. And by that, I mean not just God laughing, but the people of God receiving laughter. Laughter Laughter's a, a shared human quality, and uh, we might find different things funny at different ages, like <laughs> we were at lunch with some the other day and they were uh, one of the kids was there, and the thing they found funny was making the armpit noises. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, to me, that was super funny when you're a kid. It's not, it's not overly hilarious now. It's just something you put up with. But uh, at different ages, you find different things funny. And so our our humor matures, and um, we don't think the same things are funny that we did when we were kids. In different cultures, people find different things funny, and I imagine in different historical eras, people find, found different things funny. And among different people who even are in the same culture and even within the same family, find, I'm getting ready to go see my brother, and my brother finds different things funny than I find funny. And that's just the way it is. He loves to... Play practical jokes. I'm not like that. I don't really care to do that. Uh, but he's jovial, and um, we have different kind of definitions of humor in that regard. But uh, while we all have maybe a, a slightly different sense of humor, the fact is that we as humans all have some kind of humor. Are you with me on that? That we all have humor. We all have things that we laugh at and things that 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 you know tickle our funny bone. Um, um, of all the species, as far as we know, humans are the only ones which laugh. Okay? I'm not trying to make some anthropological statement and be dogmatic about this. Um, but as far as we know, humans are the only ones that. Uh, animals can look like they're smiling, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, what about them? That's a good point. I've thought about that. I don't think they're laughing. I think it sounds like they're laughing. I think they may be like I'm getting ready to eat you. That might be the the thing that they're doing there. I don't know. But as far as we know, they, they, even the hyenas, they don't laugh. But it sounds like it. And So where does humor come from? And I read somewhere, or maybe I heard somebody say this. I can't remember if it was uh, Theodore Dalripple, which would be kind of interesting because I don't think he's a he's not a Christian. But They said that the first recorded instance of laughter. Anybody know where that is? The first recorded—that doesn't mean the first fact. The first time it's written down. Yep, it's when God told Sarah that she was going to have a baby at ninety. She laughed. It is funny. (laughs) It's yeah. We it doesn't matter what our sense of humor is. (laughs) I don't know if you heard that, but Lydia said that would not be funny to her. (laughs) But uh, it is funny. And so God says, uh, the laugh is on you, sweetheart, because you're going to call his name Isaac. You know what Isaac is in Hebrew? Yitzhak, Yitzhak. And it means laughter. Every time they call on Isaac from now on. they're going to remember how funny it is, the joke that God played on them. And it's a a joke with a purpose, and it's not a a practical joke, it's a loving thing. But all of the world, wherever this story is told, there's laughter that surrounds the story. Are you with me? So God, he has a marvelous sense of humor, I think. And uh, sometimes we miss it because we think that spirituality has to be somber. It needs to be serious, but serious and somber are not the same. Are you with me on the difference there? Like somber means we can't ever smile, we can't ever laugh, that if we're to take things serious, we got to look seriously uh, serious, and we've got to act serious, and we've got to not crack a smile, but you can be very intent and serious about something and still do it jovially and still have joy. And so I think that there's something different between those two things, but God has a sense of humor about him. And so I said that's the first recorded instance of laughter. It must have gone on before. But demonstrating laughter goes hand-in-hand with life in God, and it's demonstrated early in the redemptive story. And to take it further, you know, he calls the baby Isaac. And if you think about it, this was done as a kind of judgment on Sarah, but it reveals um, also what we know of the joy of, of God, what a light burden to bear for having, <laughs> for having doubted. Like it could have been so much worse, you know. Like some people doubted, they got their hands slapped pretty hard. But for her, she's from now on going to have to call this baby, laughter, and uh, he's going to grow up to be the man, laughter. And I think that there's great joy in that. So, what do we know about the, the joy of God or the laugh of God? I think we can. Make an argument from creation. In creation, God created us, and of course, we have a shared humanity, and we're fallen, so we have to somehow disentangle this from the fall. Like, laughter can be perverted and used in the wrong way, and and we can be joyful about the wrong kinds of things. We can laugh at the wrong kinds of things. And I think a lot of times, um, what we laugh about reveals our character. Okay, but but the fact that there is laughter that's not a a moral thing that's something that I think is given to us from God he's given us a characteristic that we share where there's there can be humor and and there can be joy in serving him and knowing him and so I think as a part of understanding this is a part of who we are as humanity and I think it's it's given to us by God because we're created in his image like I said the animals don't do that but I don't hold animals on the same level with humanity do you no, I hope not, because God has given us special distinction. You're worth many sparrows, to put it another way. So uh, however many that that is. But the point is, is that God has a special relationship with humanity. And with that, we share commonality, and part of it is our ability to laugh. And so we, we can see that, that that must come from creation. We also... Have contact with God, we have experience with God in which we see things happen that cause us to laugh and cause us to have great joy and and if we respond to Him right, there is uh, an outflowing an expression of joy, and that 's what 's to be expected and so that shows me that this was intended and we 'll look at some verses related to that and then we have the argument from the Christian experience that that the Christian life is to be one of Shared joy. We're to have joy in His presence. We're to have joy as we share with one another. We're to rejoice, which is the verbal form of expressing joy. Right, and so sometimes we don't we don't see this, but um, it's really important that we understand that we live in a fallen world, and if we don't let the fallen world stamp out our laughter and our joy, it's a victory. It's a victory of heaven coming down into these circumstances and bringing some of heaven's aspect upon uh, our troubles here. Are, are you with me? That that some things, like if we looked at it from the naturalistic evolutionary point of view, there's no reason to laugh because we just evolved and we're all doomed. We're going to die a massive heat death when the sun burns out and all of this story will be forgotten if that's the way this all happened. But if God created it, then there's some purpose behind it in that, if we understand that we're not in the condition that God intends for us to be in and that he's actively working to redeem this, then we can find a place for joy. And we can say in the midst of this that we will not let the enemy rob us of every attribute that's good. And one of those is joy and laughter. Are you with me? So heaven wins when we laugh about the right things. Not when we laugh about the wrong thing. That's a victory on the other side. But the fact that there is laughter, I think, is a victory, and the fact that it can be used in the right way, I think, is another victory. And uh, this happens in the midst of life. Um, there's this funny irony. I love to look at old pictures. I don't know if you do that. Like, the old black and white ones from as far back as they go in our family. And I've seen some old photographs, and recently I connected with a, a cousin of my mom, which is uh, Lori's, Lori's mom. And uh, we talked, and she showed me some old pictures of our family and um, her her dad and my grandma were brother and sister and so she had some of these old pictures that went back early into the nineteen hundreds and everybody you know in those old pictures kind of looks they're not they don't smile i don't know when they invented smiling in front of cameras, but they weren't they weren't smiling that much, and so you get the impression that they're serious people and and they had difficult things. I mean they were dealing with the Great Depression and they're dealing with uh um I found out that my grandpa and my 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 grandpa's dad on my mom's side that he died from the Spanish flu in 1918 and she had four my great grandma had four kids at the time and they all had the flu survived it. So they were dealing with some tough stuff. But here's the funny thing. She said you could never get into a room with those people. They looked so sour in the pictures, but that there wasn't boisterous laughter all around. They were Norwegians, so the cold didn't bother them. You know what I'm talking about? And they lived up in North Dakota and South Dakota, and they just got on with life. And he said, anytime time you got into a room, it was laughter all the time. And one of them said to Judy that this group would be laughing if we were on the Titanic as it was going down. That's the kind of group that this was. It's kind of a strange irony that there should be that kind of comparison, you know, that there could be laughter in the middle of difficulty. And I think that's what we're talking about here. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, essay called Learning in Wartime. And he was addressing it to, I think, uh, a group of students at Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. And, And there were a lot of people that in wartime were like, What's the purpose of getting educated if this world's going to burn? Like, why waste time doing that? And so he argued that the world has always been on a precipice. There's never been a time where there's not been difficulty, and we we think that right now this is like great difficulty. But he said there's always been this crisis. Let me read some of this to you. He said, um, "The war creates absolutely no." New situation. It simply aggravates the present human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until we were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods which we think most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out on deeper inspection to be full of crises, alarms, difficulties, and emergencies. He talks about um, some of the, the weird ways that you counterbalance this. He said, one of the things he said, he fought in the trenches in World War I, and he said, one of the things that you notice is the closer you got to the front line, the less people talked about the war and the more they talked about ordinary life. Isn't that, a, isn't that a strange irony? He said, um, <laughs> and I, this this moves me to think about that that in the middle of the heat of the battle that we can be fully human. It's the people who are thinking about the war the people that are backed away from it. The people that are in the middle of the war, they're thinking of life. They're thinking about what's going on back home and hoping they can get there and wishing they could have some of mom's cooking and things like that. And he goes on to write this. He said, Men are different um, than this whole idea that you need to be away from the battle in order to enjoy life. He said, Men are different. They propound mathematical theorems in beleaguered cities, they conduct metaphysical arguments in condemned cells, they make jokes on the scaffolds, they discuss the last new poem while advancing the walls of Quebec, and they comb their hair at Thermopylae. I don't I don't know why that moves me so much but the thought that you know they're getting ready to fight this massive battle where they're going to die and people are thinking of combing their hair that's just interesting to me about and it shows how much how important it is that we have laughter in the middle of life that when when times are tough that we we learn how to to enjoy the good things that God has given us and so we can see uh that in other avenues of life. And I think it's true with us that we need to bear laughter in the middle of years. There's something heavenly about laughter. Now, we live in a fallen world, and and even uh, those without serious joy laugh. Do you know that? There are people that are laughing all the time. In fact, uh, we hire comedians. You could call them clowns because that's what they are. They're clowns, and and people watch a lot of entertainment and sports. And we try to get as much joy out of this life as we can. And some people are doing it without the heavenly gift that we've been given. So we live in this fallen world, and people are trying to find laughter. But surely, twisted as that humor sometimes is, surely the goodness of laughter is like every other delight that God gives, which may be twisted in on sin. But let's not throw it all away because of its misuse. Laughter is a gift from heaven. Why is laughter important to the Christian life? Let me mention three things quickly. We'll come to our passage in just a moment. We'll talk about that after these after these brief messages here. The first uh, thing is that when we laugh, a Christian kind of laughter, it shows that our load has been lightened through redemption. Okay, remember Jesus said, um, "All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I'll give you rest." Okay, so he's he Then he uses this farming picture for us. He says, take my yoke upon you. Okay, The yoke is the thing that attaches two oxen together. And so what they've been doing is they've been dragging. Uh, I, I picture this like dragging a dead carcass along. And that's how a lot of life is when we carry our baggage with us. That we, we're yoked with this bar across the neck to something else. And he says, instead, take off that yoke and put my yoke upon you. Yoke yourself to me. Do you know what happens when you yoke two oxen together? The strong one carries the weaker one. Isn't that true? The stronger one makes up the difference for the weaker one. And so in the relationship between you and Jesus, who's stronger? It's Jesus, isn't it? Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. And so what he does, he comes along and helps shoulder the burden. So our yoke is a lot lighter. And when that heaviness is lighter, we can laugh with a genuine laughter, not the kind that is pushing off sorrows till tomorrow. What we're doing is waiting upon our joy. That's what we're doing. We're not pushing off sorrows till tomorrow. Like, that's a really bleak way of looking at life, but but really, that's the only hope that the world has, is that I won't have as much sorrow today. Maybe that can be pushed off till tomorrow, and then and they're thinking, then we die, and if there is nothing then it's all gone and done away with so i just want to push it off as much as possible but we know something different because of the promise of christ is that our joy is set before us like christ's joy is set before was set before him a joy is set before us and so we don't just push it off to tomorrow we can we can laugh in the middle of pain because we know what tomorrow brings well it shows that our our load has been lightened and one of the characteristics of healthy churches that they found in there are people who do studies on churches. Did you know that? And they found out different things about churches and what makes them grow and all of that. Some of it's good, but some of it is a technique to try to produce bigger churches rather than better churches. And but one of the things that they've noticed in characteristics of churches is that healthy churches and growing churches are churches that laugh. When churches don't laugh, they're not growing. Isn't that interesting. Churches that laugh are growing and they display some kind of health. Now, they don't grow because they laugh. You understand that laughter is the byproduct of something. Okay? That there's something else that's been changed that causes the laughter. And so I assume it's, it's more than about the laughter. It occurs to me that it's not the laughter which does it. The laughter, rather, is the effect of having adjusted ourselves to heaven, having given the appropriate weight to each thing in turn, Okay, there are things that the world says are ultimate evils that are not the ultimate evil. Death is not the ultimate evil. Did you know that? Not when you're a Christian. In the world, death is the ultimate evil, and then you find this in a practical way when you go to talk to people who are non Christians about death. They don't want they don't want to talk about it. And part of the reason is they would rather put that out, that specter out of their imagination. It's haunting them, it's coming towards them. And they don't want to talk about it and i'm not saying that we as christians are giddy to talk about death that'd be bleak but it's it doesn't hold the same weight that it does before christ are you with me that there is a, a levity about it it's a shadow that we have to pass through it's not the full weight because that's been removed um donald gray barnhouse the great expositor on the book of romans he talked about this i think i think he'd been widowed early in life with some small children and his kids asked him about that and said, why, you know, mommy's gone. Why are, how are we to view this and why shouldn't we, he said, you don't have to be afraid of death. And they were passing by and a truck passed by and the shadow passed over their car. And he said, you know, which would you rather have, get hit by the truck or hit by the shadow? And they said, well, by the shadow. Because the shadow, it it represents that, but it doesn't bear the full effect of it. And do you understand that we're passed through a shadow? It's not the full effect. It's not the second death. It's something which leads ultimately to life. And so there's a difference in that. So we can look at things. We bear things with the proper weight. And when we, we look at death differently as Christians, then we can rejoice, even in the middle of loss. Um, we celebrated Jeanette's life the other day, and uh, it's always it's always... Probably seemed a strange irony to some that people could laugh at funerals. Shouldn't we be all crying and sad? Well, we're sad because we'll miss her, but our loss is, is her gain, and she's with Jesus. I don't say that about everybody, but I believe that's true of her. And so we can laugh as we think about her life because it doesn't have the same seriousness. But I'm telling you, I've done a lot of funerals now, and when you do a funeral for somebody who wasn't serving the Lord... It's night and day. It's night and day difference. You can feel it. The hopelessness is palpable. And the best thing you can do in a situation like that is try to light your candle a little bit and bring some hope to that dark place. But when everybody is celebrating the passing of somebody who's trusted the Lord, the light's shining all through the room. And we have a different feel. There's a different approach to it. And we can even laugh and (laughs) And there was laughter. I think one of the things that Carol mentioned, um, Jeanette's daughter, was the look that she used to get when she was a kid. And um, I think there's, uh, there's a little bit of a joy that comes from that. Laughter is the effect of having adjusted ourselves to heaven, giving the appropriate weight to each thing in turn. And so Christians can even laugh in the face of physical death because we know it's not the end of all things. It's not severe, as severe as that second reason laughter is important to the Christian life, I think, is that it's the enviable island of blessing that the world is after. Do you remember a while back, we, um, we went through the Beatitudes, and uh, at the beginning of every line of the Beatitudes is a word. What is it? Blessed, right? Or some translations have happy, because blessed doesn't exactly fit the Greek word makarios. And happy doesn't exactly fit the Greek word makarios. It's something in between happiness and blessed. You're blessed with with happiness. And so it's one of those words that there's not an exact English equivalent for it. But makarios was thought to be the island of blessing. And so some, some people thought Crete, not Crete, uh, Cyprus was that island. And so they were looking for this place, beautiful, secure, Bountiful that was the blessed life, and people are looking for that in this world they are they 're looking for for kind of a paradise they 're looking for a utopia it 's one of the reasons why um, people think that if they have the right political philosophy, they can usher in utopia well we can 't because only Christ can bring that about, and so a lot of people have tried, and you have things like in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge and uh, Pol Pot how we 're going to force this utopia upon you and uh, of course I think over 2 million people perished in that Uh, I guess they didn't get ushered into utopia and then you have communist regimes that have done terrible things and that's on the left and on the right you've got the fascist Nazis and uh, they tried to do their thing and usher in a third reich and it was going to be some new utopia but somebody always gets excluded don't they Here's the, the point that I'm trying to make is that people are looking for the island of blessing. And we found it. We found it in Jesus. Right? Is that true? Haven't we, found, haven't we found the blessed one? And so I think people are looking for that. In fact, when people party in this world, it's interesting how parties go because this world doesn't have to have a reason to have a party. Did you know that? We're having a party. I remember in high school, a lot of people uh, would say, we're having a party this weekend. What are you celebrating? We're not celebrating anything, or (laughs) probably a real hippie thing to say would have been, life, man, we're celebrating life. because we just want to enjoy life. Well, they didn't enjoy life so much as woke up with hangovers after the party was over. But they party, and they don't know what they're celebrating, and they have to dull their senses to enjoy it. Christians shouldn't have to do that because we found the source of true joy. And so it seems to me one of the reasons why laughter, and people are seeking laughter, do you know that? It's not it's not the primary thing they need. But what they need to see in our lives, it seems to me, is true joy. Do you think that's true? Do you think people, the world needs to see true joy here? Why would they come You know, I remember, bye-bye Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, and the levee was dry. If they come to the church and they find it dry, why would they want to trade their sorrow for ours? I think uh, it's really important that we offer them true joy. Not faking it, but really entering in and knowing that joy. I'll talk about what that may look like here more in just a moment, but... The third reason is it represents the joy of God. We need, to, we need to have laughter in the Christian life because it represents the joy of God, the God we serve who came to bring us true joy. And when you find the deliverance passages, Isaiah is really prominent on this. The deliverance passages are full of joy. You know, we could hardly believe our eyes, our, our laughter, our, our sorrow was turned to laughter. And Isaiah, I think 61, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom to the captives, release of darkness to the prisoner, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them the crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They'll be called oaks of righteousness planting for the display of his splendor so we can see this is what God came to bring and it suggests to me that if he's bringing joy he is a God of joy Okay, he always pours into our lives already what is his what is part of him does that make sense like righteousness he wants us to be righteous why he's righteous he wants to be holy why he's holy he wants us to be loving why because he's loving so everything that He's calling us into and offering us is part of who He is. And so the joy is part of who He, who he is. Hebrews chapter one, let's take a look at this passage and speaking of the angels, he says in verse seven, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Sun, but about the Sun, he says, Your throne, O God will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved, listen, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, okay? This is the serious part of his lordship. Therefore, God, God the Son, your God, God the Father, okay, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Therefore, God, the Son, your God the Father has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. okay so what is what is that saying? it's say, it's saying here that because he takes seriously righteousness and wickedness, he can also bring in joy. So this is true of, of his reign but I think it's also the effect of his reign is that when people come into his kingdom and recognize him as Lord and they deal with their sin and they walk in righteousness and they repent of their wickedness and turn away from it and turn to him there can be true joy. Right? I think that's here. I think it's here that God is promising this and he's promising something about the reign of the Messiah that he's anointed he's the anointed with laughter. So what I need to say here, because I, I know that probably one reaction to this message could be, why should we laugh when there's so many people that are suffering? Why should we laugh? Okay, And that that's a good question. Why should we do that? And this, I think, goes back to that learning and wartime thing. There's always people like that. Remember, remember I think it was somebody um, came to pour out their... Their gift on Jesus' feet, the perfume, and one of the disciples. The hint is that it's Judas there. Said this could have been sold and given to the poor. Do you remember that? And um, that really probably wasn't Judas' motivation. He'd been we we hear in another scripture he'd been stealing from the treasury. So he's worried about what's filling his pockets, but. He says, this could have been sold. Do you remember Jesus' response? This could have been sold and given to the poor, Judah says. What's Jesus say to that? The poor you have with you always. There's always a need. Okay? Always a need does not mean we have to always be somber. Okay? In fact, I would suggest to you one of the best ways of staying mentally healthy when there's such a large need is to laugh. Not to laugh at it. There there are um, there is a kind of humor that goes on in um triage and emergency rooms. I don't know if you knew this, but I heard this. We had a nurse in our church in Kansas and she was in triage and she said one of the things that we have to do is we have to we have to joke around, otherwise we'd cry. It's a way of dealing with the the difficulty of what they see. And so I think there's an appropriateness to that. It brings mental health to us and to use a modern term, I don't think the Bible think, talks about mental health, but let's just call it spiritual health. Part of that is to be so grounded in God that in a, in the middle of a life where there is such sorrow that we can still laugh. I think it's God's calling for us. Now, there is there is an appropriate time to laugh and a time not to. Are Are you with me on that? I'm not saying laugh at all times because i think there's appropriate time to laugh and a time to cry as the song says in ecclesiastes and and sung in the 60s right a time to laugh and a time to cry and there's a time to uh time to be serious and the tension between the two can almost be unbearable it's kind of ironic that i'm i'm a preacher now because when i was a kid i always found the most inappropriate times to laugh in church anybody else there me and Stanley Mason are messing around. We finally had to be separated and couldn't sit together at church anymore. And our friendship went the way of all flesh after that. And other things would happen in church. And the fact that you knew you weren't supposed to laugh because the preacher was pausing to make a powerful point, that's exactly when you just couldn't hold it in anymore. You snickered too loud and ruined the whole mood, and, and so God got got me back. The worst is when you're on the platform. Um, one of my pa- another pastor that I had, somebody gave a testimony and he got tickled by it, and he could not for like probably ten minutes he could not go on. He just <laughs> laughed, <laughs> he laughed and, and the worship leader is sitting over on the platform, and the person telling it was very serious, but I mean it, it arrested that probably that probably wasn't the appropriate time to laugh, but. I'm saying that there is an appropriate time, and there's not. And you'll find that there are verses in the Bible, and and some people are very serious about the things of God, will want to cling to these and make these the emphasis. And they'll they'll say to you, there are verses uh, uh, in the Bible about putting an end to laughter in the streets and and uh, turning your laughter into tears. And those verses are there, as like Jeremiah and. The book of James talks about that in chapter 4, about uh, turning your laughter into sorrow. And and the reason is because something else needs to happen in a person's life at that moment, not because that's God's ultimate intention. Do you understand that? It's not like God is saying, enough of this laughter. I'm tired of it. It's too much. The kids are being too silly. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's dealing with the fact that they're laughing when they should have been crying. Something was wrong in their lives that they needed to deal with. And so he's calling them to the carpet in that particular moment. Like if you're standing before your dad and you're you're in trouble for something and you're about to get a spanking, it's not the right time to laugh. I know from experience (laughs) that just makes it worse. And um, I could tell you a story, but we're running out of time and it's not really that important. So that's what that's dealing with is these are warnings That The wicked laugh now, but they'll not laugh later. And so the question is, doesn't repentance come before joy? In a fallen world, it does. But in a perfect world, joy would have come first and remained because there would have been no need for repentance. Like, Do you think that there was a lot of sad crying in the Garden of Eden? I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it seems to me that that wouldn't have been necessary. I, I don't think. I think that would have been appropriate for there to be great joy. Now, after the fall, yes, tears, weep tears. Uh, Before the fall, it seems to me that sorrow would not have been necessary. Hear me out. If there's no sin, if there's no sickness, if there's no death, what is there to mourn? And I think even the work which God gave Adam and Eve would have been delightful before the fall. You know, work is not a consequence of the fall. Work, hard work, labor with great sweat and fighting against the earth that's fighting back, that's a consequence of the fall. But not work. Work is part of our shared calling with God. Do you know that? He wants us to be involved in his work. He wants us to be making the world better where we can, but... There would have been no reason for for tears. So this has to do with people, and we talk about repenting, that would have been, been dealing with people who need to repent. It's not heaven's ultimate goal. And so there's a difference between momentary purposes and ultimate purposes, okay? So sometimes we go through things that have a purpose in the moment, but they're not the ultimate thing, okay? Hear, hear me out on this. It's, I don't want to uh, take too much time here, but... If you think about this, it's not heaven's ultimate goal for us to be sorrowful and repenting all the time. God wants us to repent where it's necessary, but we're not to be in a perpetual state of repentance. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be repenting. Well, maybe we'll repent at first, be like, oh God, in light of all the gifts you gave me, I squandered so much. But after that, do you think heaven's going to be filled with, I don't know of any hymns that talk about 10,000 upon 10,000 years of repenting? No. Why? Because there's joy forevermore. Because that's been taken care of. Are you with me? That had a momentary purpose, but once that momentary purpose is passed through, the momentary purpose is pushed out of the way, and we aim at ultimate purposes, which is joy and laughter. I hope you're you're hearing my heart on this. It's not heaven's ultimate goal. Once that purpose of repentance is completed. The sorrow of repentance is pushed away and it gives way to joy. Sorrow lasts for the night, okay, but joy comes in the morning. And that probably the sorrow that's there isn't just the sorrow of having a difficulty you've gone through, but it may be actually the sorrow of repentance, that sorrow lasts for the night, but then joy comes in the morning. And So a true test of character is to know when to laugh and when not to laugh. There's not a rule book, and I'm not going to prescribed to give you a rule book on when to laugh and when not to laugh, that would be, you can cover every eventuality. In fact, sometimes you can laugh at the right time, but for the wrong reasons. And <laughs> the opposite, we don't laugh when we should. Um, however, let me mention three things we shouldn't laugh at, okay? And then we'll move quickly through this to the end. Um, number one is we shouldn't laugh at things that make heaven sorrow, Like there's things that make heaven grieve, and we shouldn't laugh at those things. There are things in comedy, in movies, television shows, things that people talk about that make heaven cry. And some people use that for humor, and we shouldn't laugh at those kinds of things. Not when we take heaven seriously, take God seriously. Heaven is a euphemism here for for God. There is a place, but I'm talking about him. The second thing we shouldn't laugh about are things that belittle God. If anything somehow reduces him or, I mean, there's a word for that, it's blaspheme, but I'm trying to describe this in a way that maybe we would hear it, where God is somehow diminished in humor. We shouldn't laugh at things like that. The third thing is we shouldn't laugh at things that hurt other people. Now, this one's a tricky one because sometimes there's not malice in our laughter. Somebody falls and they don't get seriously hurt then. Maybe falling is a bad example. Lorraine just fell, but if you could think of something else where somebody does something and you know they do something foolish, and it's a little bit funny. Okay, we're not we're not laughing at their demise. We're laughing at how funny that looked. I, I don't know. I don't. That's a tricky one because there's a way to do that, I think, and not. I don't like to laugh people when they get hurt. But I think sometimes there's a very narrow margin between, like, your kid does something cute and it's kind of silly, and you laugh at that. Somebody else does that, and if you laugh at them, it could be wrong. You know what I'm saying? It's all there's a, a there's a way of looking at that that we need to ask ourselves what are, what's really going on there. Are we are we making fun of the person? Or are we laughing about something related to them? So there's some of that that God's gonna have to test our heart in, but. We shouldn't laugh at things that truly hurt other people, and that can that hurt is a big category. Okay, but God does want us to laugh. Proverbs 17, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And we read Isaiah 61. But what I don't want, and I hope you'll be with me on this, is in our laughter and our joy, I think we need more of it. Would you agree? Like, we need to be expressing this more. And let's start with ourselves and say, God, whatever there is in me that's an obstacle to me, they, the, the older English word for this is mirth, you know, to, to have true joy and a kind of a, a giddiness of soul that goes along with being a child of God, true mirth. Okay? If there's anything that's standing in the way of that, would you expose that and deal with it? That's a good place to start with me. Not, God, why do I go to such a sour church where nobody can laugh the way that they should? Don't start there. I don't think that's true of this church anyway. We we laugh, okay? But if there's a reason in us, maybe a sourness that we've gone through that has reduced us in some way from seeing the goodness of God, maybe we need to deal with that and ask God to deal with it. But the one thing I don't want, and this is what I was coming to, is I don't want to create a climate where we have to put on fake smiles and act like everything's okay. Okay, I don't want that, because I don't want us to be plastic and fake. If you're going through something, you can go through something. What I mean is if somebody asks you how you're doing, and if you didn't say, I'm blessed and full of the Holy Spirit and on my way to heaven, if you don't say that, they reprimand you. Um, that's not the kind of climate we want to create. and I don't think that's how we need to be. There's even a verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul says... Uh, He describes himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So he can say, honestly, I'm going, there's a bad time. And yet, deep inside of me, I still have the joy of the Lord. Okay, so, and then one place he says, we despaired even of life itself. Man, that's bleak. Okay, but he's not going to let it rob him of joy true joy where he says i still love god i'm still in town i can still smile i can still laugh through this but i can recognize the seriousness of a difficult time somehow we've got to carry those two things simultaneously okay you know you know what i'm saying that it's not like we're just those things aren't real and push them off into the fake no th- those things are real But I just think that God so does work in our life that it counterbalances those. Like, there was a way that we were kind of taught growing up that one of the ways you dealt with real difficulties, you just denied that it was real. I don't think you do that. I don't think you deny that it's real. I think you acknowledge that it's very real, but that still Christ has overcome, that still his joy outweighs that. Remember how it says, these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. Paul sets them in a scale, and he puts on one side the sufferings and on the other side the glory, and he shows that the glory far outweighs them all. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote his book, The Weight of Glory, is that glory outweighs the sufferings of this life. And So there can be joy. So let's not be plastic or fake or come up with pat answers. <laughs> Sometimes when the people ask that question, I know they're they're... They're going to give me a certain what-for if I don't answer the right way. I intentionally say, I'm doing all right. And you know what invariably it is? Just all right? Yeah, I'm doing just all right. And I think that's okay. I'm actually doing really good. But I don't want us to be plastic and fake. Let's be ourselves. Let's be real in who we are. Now, the book, and I'm talking about the whole Megillah here, that it ends with two affirmations. Are you ready for it? Number one, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 and 7. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. Okay? Remember, the king has been anointed. He takes seriously righteousness and unrighteousness. He takes seriously those things. And he's been anointed for a throne where he's been anointed with joy. Okay, listen. The Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us then rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Joy, that's the end of the book. Okay, here's the other side. Okay, same same coin, the other side of it, because there's two parts to this. Revelation 21, 2 through 4, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. From God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. This is this is as if this has been the whole aim since Adam and Eve fell. Do you do you hear that when you come to this in Revelation chapter nineteen or twenty-one? This has been, and you can hear it echoed all the way through the Bible. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's as if there's this desire and this wish in the heart of God that is constantly pushing forward redemption's plan. And then it says, and now. Now. (laughs) The the, The dwelling place is now among the people. And I will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And listen, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Why? Why? Because there's no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the other side of the coin is that there can be great joy because mourning and everything that would cause it has passed away. That's part of the old system. And that's what God will do is he will redeem things in just that way. It's two sides of the same coin, the end of all sorrow and the fullness of joy. And Christ has provided that. Amen. Why don't we stand together? We've got a couple minutes here. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. There's lots of instances in Scripture where God laughs and, A lot of times he laughs when we have a plan like that. Psalm 2 is perfect with that, Lydia, because it says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why do the people gather together against the Lord and his anointed? They say, let us break off his bands. And it says the Lord in heaven laughs. Why? Because it's so ridiculous to think we could win against God. And there's other places where God laughs. I think he laughed there when he was with Sarah and he told her, this kid, you're going to have a kid in your old age, and his name will be called Laughter. And uh, I just think that's it's part of the character of God, and ought will be part of our character as well. So hope we're challenged in that, and uh, that we think about this a little bit, and let it really soak in. Father, if there's uh, any reason in us that we should be jaded or cynical because of life's events, I pray, God, that you would bring the sweetness of your spirit to dispel all of that. Lord, like the flower that uh, Elisha adds to the poison pot that makes it palatable and nutritious. Lord, we pray that you would come and bring that, that healing through Christ into our lives so that we can be people of true joy. And Lord, let that joy radiate out. Let this be a church where there can be laughter. And I pray, God, that it would uh, ring through our homes and through our jobs where it's appropriate, and Lord, let us cry where it breaks your heart. And I pray, God, that we would be that people that stands in the middle between those two responses, Lord, in a way that honors you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. And as I said, if uh, there's anything that's standing in the way of that, would you would you talk to the Lord about it, and he'll help you. Amen. God bless you. We have one minute. I'll subtract that from the message on Sunday, though somebody else is preaching it. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.